Do you want to do our fucking golden triangle haikus? Yes. I hate these stupid things. I thought they, like, I don't want to say discontinued. Okay, chopped it off at the bits and, like, buried it 20 feet under piles of where our DC museum dreams go to die because I did (laughs) not see them anywhere, but I don't think they reach where I live. Yeah, because they're only in Golden Triangle. For context, listeners, there's this, like, spring thing that the district of columbia does where in golden triangle which is i think what exactly is golden triangle it's like new hampshire avenue massachusetts avenue and penn maybe i i dude it really was not until this past year i realized the golden triangle actually meant something i thought it was just some company paying and they that's why they have like their logo on it like it was a sponsor thing for them it's like it's like north of foggy bottom mm-hmm. south of dupont west of colorado I, like they're slipping their shoes. yeah i they're think it's like new coast. hampshire it's new hampshire avenue massachusetts avenue and i want to say penn and it's like the triangle that those form but i could absolutely be wrong it might also just be k street but i did see one on penn or I Street. It doesn't matter. They're Anyways. Just losing their mind because they're not haikus at anymore. That's the thing. So they post these like air quotes haikus in like the f- planter boxes that are on the side on like the, the sidewalks. And it's cute and that's nice. And they're short little, they're like little poems. Problem is they're not fucking haikus. Almost none of them are haikus. I have yet to see one that is an actual haiku. Sometimes it's just three lines and each line is like it's like two syllables and then five syllables and then like three syllables so it's like totally wrong and I wouldn't have a problem this is my personal thing I wouldn't have a problem with that kind of poetry like being posted around like some of them I think are really nice the problem is they're not haikus and you're calling it a haiku contest so just call it like a short poetry contest Yes, because also they used, I don't know, because I I haven't seen any of the winner signs. So, Lana, that you... I've seen winner signs. They're never, never haikus. Exactly. Like, the last time I saw a winner sign when, like, I was an undergrad living in DuPont, it was, like, came in first place, and it wasn't actually a haiku. Like, how do you... They're not haikus. Like, what? It still confuses me, still makes it me It really so annoys me, actually. I'm annoyed. To the fact that I said, like, we both said at pretty much the same time in our group chat of what we wanted to banter about of specifically we needed to slip this in. That's how mm-hmm. I'm annoyed. It's such a weird thing to be annoyed It's about. such a weird, like, niche thing to be angry about. That, like, Lexi, when was the last time you were even, like, do you even, you have no stake in this anymore. I used to see them in the past. Haven't seen them in a long time. Did they make you angry too? Or are like, or are Haley and I just being like pedants? At first, they made me angry. Then I stopped looking. Fair. Valid. Extremely valid of you. This modern world of science and invention is of particular interest to women.
Hello and welcome to Lady History, the good, the bad, and the ugly ladies you missed in history class. Lexi, to be or not to be? Definitely to not be. To not to be. And Haley, what's the best metaphor for your life? You know that dust bunny that collects on like, like that favorite t-shirt that you wear, but that fell behind your bed? I'm the dust bunny. Yeah. That is like so sweet and also hard, like a little bit heartbreaking. <laughs> exactly. And I'm Alana and Shakespeare is overrated. I've probably used that one before, but it's still true. I also appreciate poetry because a lot of poetry museums don't focus just on poetry as such That's a huge true. thing. Like the Emily Dickinson Museum. It's like, yeah, we're talking about Emily Dickinson, but we'll talk about this other stuff and we'll talk, we won't focus on like something so niche will be more accepting and inviting. And I like that with, yeah, I, it's surprising to me because I thought poetry was so alienating in school. Trigger warning, I'm gonna mention potential suicide non-confirmed suicide. That's it. That's all I'm going to say. Okay. Sappho was likely born on the Greek island called Lesbos in approximately the 1600s BCE. And I know that's a whole century of approximately, but man, do people disagree <laughs> about when this person was born. It's um, stupid funny how much people argue about when this person was born whoa crazy (laughs) is people calm down (laughs) this dead person dead long time like my brain cells are really dying right now (laughs) i was watching a tiktok and they used the phrase sapphic novel and in the comments it was like sappho actually and they did like a whole thing like this person was truly trying to like educate the universe and gave like a line of dates and other comments were like actually that's incorrect Sappho was actually born in like this time and I'm I really wanted to be like I know about you guys archaeologists here we don't actually know so (laughs) yeah I say approximately and give a whole century because no date anyone gives you matters her family was wealthy they were part of like the the lesbos aristocracy the lesbos aristocracy they were a part of that she also had several brothers that's just a thing we know she possibly maybe married a man i'm like maybe she had a daughter maybe again we're talking about the 600s bce so everything is a maybe she likely lived in Mytilene, which was the capital of Lesbos, for most of her adult life. But again, like it probably, maybe, maybe not. She ran an academy for women devoted to the cult of Aphrodite and Eros, which only unmarried women could attend. And I think some people hear that and they're like, well, that's gay. And I'm like, well, no, like married women can't learn, not allowed. So, or well, okay, nothing's a constant. Like I'm sure there were some women who were married and who were allowed to learn. 
in ancient Greece. But Sappho's history, as with all ancient women that we have covered on this show, is more than just a bit unclear. Records suggest she was a well-known poet, with Plato calling her the 10th muse. The style of poetry she wrote in is named for her. We call it Sapphic Meter. Her poetry was sung, accompanied by a lyre, as most ancient Greek poetry is. They are playful and soulful stories that tell the tales of bittersweet love. And it is likely her works were passed down generation to generation through oral tradition and were not written down in her lifetime because that's how it worked then. So the recorded versions that have been found archaeologically may not be correct. They do not reflect her original works. They definitely are variations. If you've ever played a game of telephone, you can imagine that's a lot what oral tradition is like. That's not to delegitimize oral traditions. Oral traditions are valid sources and they should be respected. Like a lot of archaeologists who are very old school are like, screw oral traditions. It's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying everything is with a little grain of salt. Just, just a TC, like just the right amount of salt. That's all. There are disagreements on the story of Sappho's death. Some suggest she died young by romantic suicide, jumping off of a cliff after having her heart broken by a sailor. Uh, I will note that the sailor in question was a male and we'll get into that later. Others suggest that she lived to a ripe old age of like 40 or 50, as some do, which is more likely given that some of her found poetry complains about her aging and like she's complaining about her body not being what it used to be and like her hair going gray and like losing her youthful beauty and it, it could be that she was a young woman complaining about that because like I know 20 somethings who are like I wish I looked like my 16 year old self but like more likely she was someone who lived to an older age and experienced change in her body just based on her writing. Her poems were not collected and published together until the third century BCE. So again, this is where that grain of salt stuff comes in. She never collected and published her poetry in a written book, never. So take that as you will. For a long period of time, it was thought that her work was actually completely lost. Only one of her poems is known to be completely preserved intact. It's a 28 line poem, but one of the largest collections of her poetry was in the Library of Alexandria. and if if you don't know, that means it it gone. Um, feel free to Google that. I'm not telling that whole story right now, but that means it gone. Many, many ancient things be gone because of that. Her other work is known from times it was quoted and cited by other writers whose work was more preserved, but we're talking about people who cited her like hundreds of years after her death. And it might be different than what she intended. Archaeologists at the turn of the 20th century found work attributed to her in ancient Egypt. And I know you've got like little alarm bells. You're like, she wasn't in Egypt. It's actually very reasonable considering her work was known to like travel pretty far and wide after her death when it was recorded and actually distributed. Apparently a lot of people in the ancient world liked it. And so it is totally reasonable that a written version of her work would be in a tomb in ancient Egypt, which is where it was. It's so actually like the paper from the poem was reused to create like, I think it was like 
some sort of ritualistic object and now I can't remember which one it was but like it wasn't sustainability like yeah it wasn't like the book was in the tomb it was like when they unwrap a mummy which is bad don't unwrap a mummy and that's coming from someone who loves ancient history um and they like find like papers with fragments of words on it and they try and attribute meaning to it but like it was just like using newspaper to like put under something while you paint a picture or something like that kind of thing <laughs> like reusing so we know her books that she didn't write in her lifetime because she didn't print things but we know her written word based on her oral traditions eventually ended up in Egypt that's a long way of saying that long after Sappho passed away her legacy as the key lesbian historical figure was completely manufactured and I know I'm going to disappoint a lot of queer women because I was a little disappointed once I found this out about Sappho. I, I had these visions in my head that she was super queer and like super famous for being queer, right? Um, completely made up long after her death. So let's get into why, why that happened. Comedic writers were parodying her for like even at like 300 years after her death, which is kind of like if SNL does a Shakespeare sketch, like it's just like, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, it, it was a long time ago and like, but now we're, we're gonna make a silly goofy joke about it. There were like varying ways that she was parodied, but prim primarily she was often portrayed as promiscuous. And then also sometimes she was portrayed as gay because she was promiscuous. So like the joke was silly lady poet, like sexy time. And like, that's like something you would laugh at in the ancient world. This reputation had a real lasting impact. And in fact, in 1073 AD, the Pope was like, I heard this lady is a hoe and burned all her books that were in the Vatican. <laughs> so, you know, her, her reputation succeeds her. Um, no one's gonna laugh, that was pretty funny. It was pretty good. Anyway, whatever. It was, it was funny. I didn't wanna interrupt you. Okay. Um, so that leads us to the age old question, which many people have asked, but most people don't even think to ask was Sappho a queer woman? Who knows? The social acceptance of queer identity has fluctuated greatly since the time that Sappho lived. Because if you didn't know, in the past, being gay was pretty okay. And sometimes it was like a side thing you did for fun. That's just a thing that the cultures be different. Well, if, um, if women don't like sex and only men like sex, who are the men going to have sex with? other men boom, 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 obviously boom, boom, boom. ming 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 that's yes and what do the women do they go and talk in little rooms and they have lady friendships where they hold each other and because that not is not sexy at not all not sexy so basically it is very possible that during her time she had really like the time she lived she had relationships with both men and women her husband probably wouldn't have seen her having relationships with women as cheating because like women can't cheat women be asexual basically and so it's very possible she was queer and it's like something that got made fun of later and something that got exaggerated as being queer became less accepted at a global level. So the short answer is we will never know. And we say this a lot in the show about women's like gender identity and sexuality because like unless it's like recorded in very plain language or we have very strong evidence, it is very hard to tell what someone's sexual identity was like we can be pretty certain when like two women were just old maids who lived together for 60 years and slept in the same room that they were gal pals right they were besties uh, slash ass hard sarcasm 
But some scholars, as scholars are known to do, have looked to what survives of her literary work to try and discover more about what her sexuality possibly could have been, obviously cannot say definitively. People do this with Shakespeare too. If you want something on like the, the boy side of things, like people are always like, Shakespeare was gay and this is how I know how. People do that with Sappho, but obviously have less recorded Sappho stuff than we do Shakespeare stuff. In one poem, she describes her jealous feelings as a man or like multiple men occupy the time of a girl that she wishes to like be closer with and spend time with and be physically near. People are like, that could be, that could be gay. And other people are like, that could also not be gay. Other evidence exists too. So don't get disappointed so fast. Sappho may not have actually been married to a man because the only document where he is named by name was written 15 centuries after she possibly died. And the name attributed to him is an ancient Greek dick joke. The name of her supposed husband was Kirklaeus, which is possibly a play on the word Kirkos. And that's an ancient Greek slang word for penis, like equivalent of just being like dick. So it may be that like whoever was writing that was like, well, this promiscuous young lady was married to the dick. So that's one possible interpretation. Or we were like, she, or like not us, the, the writers, or the writers were like, well, she was probably married to a man, but we don't have a name for him. So let's call him penis. <laughs> and if you didn't know, the ancient world loves penises. We don't, we know this. Um, many critiques of her works in classical Greece, so written by classical writers in the classical period, noted that she was a sex addict and a predator specifically to men. So was she bi, straight, lesbian? Was she a predator? Was that just people being afraid of an independent woman? There's all these questions. We have more questions than answers about this woman. If we dig even deeper, we learn something really interesting that I did not know until I read this. And it makes me question much of my existence. We find out that the term lesbian has a far more detailed history than the simple explanation we are usually given. So like, what do you guys think the origin of that word is just based on like, it's probably what I thought it was until I did this research, so. I mean, lesbos? Yeah, that would be my guess as well. Like lesbian of lesbos. Sort of, sort of. Half a point. The, yeah, well, I mean, we all, the whole world gets half a point because that's how we think about it. But I'm literally, just for context, dear listeners, remember we all have, degrees in archaeology and have studied classics and have never heard this real actual history of this word. Fucking crazy. I swear if one of our professors are listening, it's been a long time since we were in your classes. Please take pity on us. I no, I would have remembered this. Notes, and I would have remembered if my world was crushed by having queer identity put in front of me in a way that was not what I expected. <laughs> The explanation we hear every day, or not hear every day, but like the explanation you're used to hearing is very close to the reality. But when you peel back the layers, there are so many layers that we don't get to know. The Greek term lebesian most closely translates to blowjob and derives from the word meaning to behave like someone from Lesbos. And as we know, the classical world loves dick jokes. And so what the word meant was like 
Oh, you big slut from Lesbos giving oral sex. Ooh. Um, you know, <laughs> that's that's the actual meaning of Lebesian. So if we got in a time machine and we went to Casablanca, Greece, and we said the modern word lesbian, they would probably not be picturing two women being intimate with each other. They would be like, ah, I have people from Lesbos do love to give fellatio. <laughs> you silly, goofy person. And we'd fit right in. So now you know some humor. You know the word for dick too. So you could just make a bunch of sex jokes in ancient Greece and really you, you could probably win the hearts of many. Um, and that's my new dream. I'm going to get a time machine. I'm going to ancient Greece and I'm going to become a comedian, like a stand-up comic, like, like Ms. Maisel, but like ancient Greece. I'll get there I'm like, hey, uh, lesbian. <laughs> so that's all fascinating to me because what do I think about that? as someone in the queer community. Well, as a bi woman, I have trouble comprehending how any woman could not be into women. Like that's, a, that's something my brain can't understand. And I'm just being completely honest with everyone. Like, it, 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 like I, I'm not kidding. This is not a joke. I struggle to believe that anyone cannot be bisexual just because that's the way my brain is wired, <laughs> particularly women. I'm like, how, how do you not? So I think, Sappho was probably some type of queer based on the fact that she lived in a time when it was like, okay to hang out with your lady friends, wink, wink, your gal pals. People called her promiscuous and let's be real, women who are like comfortable with their sexuality often get accused of being promiscuous by men. And those are the people who sound good about her. Her writing is a little gay. Uh, it's just a teeny bit gay. And um, how could she not like titties? Uh, that's my professional theory <laughs> as an academic. This is just a really brief intro to like all the controversy and evidence surrounding the study of Sappho. There's actually like sapphic studies and like people, people literally like write their theses digging into like, was Sappho a gay? So if you're curious, you can head to my sources, read some of the sources I included. They go way more in depth than my story. The last thing I'll say is check out the really goofy Kate McKinnon SNL sketch. I don't know if Either of you have seen it or listeners, if you've seen it, but in the sketch, she plays a sapphic scholar who's like a class assist, not a classist, who's like, we found, we uncovered new works by Sappho and she translates them. And it, it had me hooting and hollering as an owner of a Subaru. My car is gay. Thank you for coming to my TED talk. This is a short but super story. On a previous episode, I might have mentioned that I wanted to talk about the academic theories behind Shakespeare being a lady. If it wasn't on the main feed, it might be on our Patreon, and this is not me basically saying go subscribe to our Patreon as I come off of editing a fabulous episode and how I really love our Patreon content. But anywho, I keep being pulled back to my Persian roots, if you will. I wanted to talk about a Persian poet or author. Hell, I was even in Farsi class once upon an undergrad, and three out of the 12 of us were just there to learn how to like read and speak Farsi, to read and basically do renditions of poetry, as it was meant to be, because side note, translations can get messy. Anyways, 
Without a further ado, the story of Parveen Etasami, one of the most notable contemporary Iranian poets, born in 1907 in Tabriz. We're just jumping right in. And Tabriz is a city northwest of Iran, very big city. It's a very beautiful city. Please just like look at the architecture. And the they use a cobalt blue, and now I've been seeing cobalt blue as like 2020s color of the year. I digress. Parveen grew up in the very privileged state of having relatives that valued education in general, but like valued women having an education, girls from a young age, educating themselves, empowering themselves, snaps to them. They were also brilliant humans themselves and were in the academic field. And her father, Yusuf, taught her both Farsi and Arabic. So that kind of spurred this love of languages. And later she studied at Iran Bethel, an American secondary school for girls. And it was there where she learned English and studied literature. She started poetry writing or just poetry as a concept when she was only eight years old. And I think I was just learning how to read as a concept at around eight years old. If I had been reading for some time before then, I was definitely not at a good reading level at all. Just cat in the hat. The horrible Dr. Seuss was my basis for my reading level at eight probably, and she was writing beautiful, beautiful poetry. And by age 11, when Haley is still reading Cat on the Hat, Cat in the Hat even, (laughs) she was so good and it was so clear that she is a poet prodigy, if you will. She was being compared to Rumi. And side note that, or fun fact, if you will, that's one of the poets that a lot of my Farsi class were really interested in. But we just focused on Paravin, which was also fantastic because my Farsi professor was just brilliant. She was like, well, we have all these poets, so let's just dabble in all of them. Uh, A feminist icon, if you will, bringing Paravin to our forces of nature, of poetry-loving humans in undergrad. And... You could tell that she was being connected to all these other famous Iranian poets from just the style she wrote in, not necessarily content, because she wrote more, and I say this because like Rumi, notably male, identified as a male, and Rumi, I wouldn't say like less so like wrote about being what was like being human, but like less so writing about the struggles of being a lady, and that's what Paravine did. And I will get more into that. And But for now, I'm going to focus a little more about like still her studying. And when she turned 18, she was at the American Girls College in Tehran. And she was basically like a TA. Even in this like gray period of wishing high school, wishing college, even though it was called, it was girls college, Shit gets weird when it's Iran and you are in like early 1900s, 1920s, if you will. And she's kind of both teaching English um, and also studying it, which is just incredible. And her themes of poetry is about the struggles of being a lady. Like a lot, a lot of it. 
very notable in her writing. And in that scope, it was history, philosophy, anthropology, and we love that here at Lady History. If you have not picked up on that yet, if you are a new person to our listeners, Lady History loves anthropology. We love ladies. We love anthropology. We love history. We love philosophy. Paravine's our girl. And this really resonated with a poem she wrote for her graduation called A Twig of a Wish, which just gets into all three of those themes, the history, philosophy, and anthropology of what it's like to be a lady and to be a lady in Iran and having just the opportunity to be an educated lady. And outside of poetry, she continued to empower people around her by advocating education and just like women's rights in general, saying that essentially women and strong women were the backbone of a strong society. So you could not have a strong society without strong women. And just, yes, yes all around. So you know how I mentioned she was one of the most notable contemporary Iranian poets? Well, besides the fact that her writing was just straight beautiful, it was her collection of Divani, which is like collection of poetry translated. Um, people who are better in Farsi, please correct me if I got that wrong. Um, this is going off again what I said, my limited Farsi. And I couldn't also not tell because remember, this is uh, an Iranian poet and some of my sources are from Iran or in the scope of Iranian scholars. And I could not, I could not distinct whether the language of saying her collection of poetry, this book, was the most like printed work of poetry in within Iran by an uh, Iranian author or just in general of Iranian poetry with including or with with including UK, US, just Western um, publishing stats in general. So you do that with what you will. Regardless, she's an incredible author still, even though she passed in 1941. You can see her work in my show notes, in our playlist, and her influences just still resonate about women having a fundamental right to education is still something we talk about so often. It's still so prevalent and her poetry just still speaks such volumes. And I truly encourage you and if I, if I may um, empower you to listen to both in Farsi and in English, even though you don't understand language fully, I sure as shit don't understand Farsi fully. And I've grown up with the language in general. So just dabble in everything. It is okay to listen and try to um, understand something even though you know you just don't speak the language and won't understand it. That is totally fine. Cut to me being in a like biology class for many years in undergrad and in high school. Just can I tell you the anatomy of fish? No. Can I tell you what this language means and written the Farsi script? Also, no. But can I tell you that both things are beautiful? Yes. Yes, I can. When you that at this moment 
when you that at this moment are to me dearer than words on paper shall depart and be no more the order of my heart whereof again myself shall hold the key and be no more what now you seem to be the sun if you know the saying about burning a candle at both ends then you've definitely heard of this lady even if you don't know it Anna St. Vincent Millay was born February 22nd, 1892, a Pisces, and like three days off from being in the Aquarius squad, but whatever. She was born in Rockland, Maine, so she's actually my second Maine lady in a row, which is so odd because I feel like not a lot of people live in Maine. Maine's also such a weird place to be. And it's such a weird place. I have family in Maine, so like, I'm sorry, but it's such a weird place to be. My point stands. Yeah, no, I'm with you. Maine, I always think of, it's either where all the sleepaway camps are, (laughs) lobsters, or where rich people go to summer. The St. Vincent comes from the name of a hospital where her uncle's life was saved, and as a child, Edna insisted on being called Vincent. She seems to have dropped this later on, so it's impossible to say if she was maybe trans, because we simply do not know, and we cannot ask. She was the oldest of three girls who were raised by a single divorcee who worked as a nurse to support her family. This would contribute to Edna's feminist activism later in life. Powerful women raise powerful women. We know this. We love to see it. When Edna was 19, she had kind of hit a wall in her life. She had graduated high school, but she didn't have any money for college. Uh, So she stayed with her family and like helped take care of her sisters. Her mother suggested that she submit her poem, Renaissance, to a literature review called the Lyric Years Poetry Contest. She ended up winning fourth place, so no like prize, but more importantly, some higher ups at Vassar College read her poem and were like, damn, this bitch is talented and gave her a scholarship to attend. People who read Renaissance, not, not like Renaissance, it's like Renaissance, it's spelled differently. But the people who read the poem were like, you end poetry like a man, derogatory. And Edna was like, fuck you, I do what I want. Uh, Edna was not a great student. She would call in sick as much as you could like call back in the day. And then her professors would see her not being sick later in the day. One time a professor confronted her about this and she said, quote, Prexy, at the moment of your class, I was in pain with a poem. At the time, Vassar was a women's only college, but that didn't stop Edna from having several affairs with her classmates. That's right. We stand a bisexual icon. We will get to how she's bi and not a lesbian in a minute. She almost didn't graduate because she was suspended right before graduation for what the Vassar website calls her unruly ways. Um, But one of my other sources says she just got caught off campus, which I guess was a no-no back then. The past is so weird. She wasn't allowed to celebrate with her class, including reading a poem that she wrote specifically for graduation, but she did still get her degree. After college, she moved to Greenwich Village and lived what was then considered the bohemian lifestyle for the time. She was writing and socializing and having affairs with both men and women, hence bisexual icon, not lesbian icon. She had several marriage proposals, but declined all of them. Uh, Edna also had a bit of a theater streak where she performed in plays that she wrote while she was in Britain and Europe for two years between 1919 and 1921. During that time, she published a collection of poetry that included the poem First Fig, which goes, 
My candle burns at both ends. It will not last the night. But on my foes and oh my friends, it gives lovely light, which is where the candle burning at both ends phrase comes from. So today you learned, or maybe you already knew. In 1923, she won the Pulitzer Prize for the Ballad of the Harp Weaver. And later that year, she did get married to, I can't pronounce names. This is Eugene, Eugene, Jan Boisivan, maybe? Boisivan? I'm going to call him Eugene. Uh, He was a coffee importer, unlike her previous suitors who had all been like literary types. Edna was actually violently ill on their wedding day to the point that Eugene had to rush her to the hospital for surgery. Uh, She also said that if she died that day, at least she would be immortal because she had won the Pulitzer. Edna and Eugene's marriage was, as they described, open. And Edna once uh, also described it as, quote, living like bachelors. So they both had lots of affairs, but like still cared for and loved each other. And you know what? Good for them. Eugene also became Edna's manager and gave up his coffee importing job to work on that. And so just totally devoted himself to like her business stuff. They lived in upstate New York and also had a place in Maine where they split their time. Uh, Edna spent a lot of time in New York City itself to like gain material for her poetry. But she said that NYC was like, too exciting. And so she needed the quiet to actually write. And write she did. So many poems and plays. I can't list them all, but I will put them, I will put a list in the show notes. Unfortunately, on October 18th, 1950, Edna St. Vincent Millay died of a fall at the age of just 58. Her sister Norma worked very hard to publish the rest of her poems posthumously, but we clearly could have gotten so much more from her. So that's really sad. You can find this podcast on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram at Lady History Pod. Our show notes and a transcript of this episode will be on ladyhistorypod.com. If you like the show, leave us a review or follow us on Patreon. And if you don't like the show, blast off into space and keep it to yourself. Our logo is by Alexia Ibarra. You can find her on Instagram at girlbum.production. Our theme music is by me, Garage Band, and Amelia Earhart. Lexi is doing the editing. You will not see us, and we will not see you, but you will hear us next time on Lady History. Next time on Lady History. Well, we're taking a little break. So there is a next time, but we can't really tell you what it's about because um, we're on a break. So now on Lady History, uh, we're on a break.